We have been having a class uh, on prayer. Uh, isn't it interesting that we need a class on prayer at church? But uh, we've started some ongoing theological education, and it's uh, in conjunction with a place called Moody Bible Institute, uh, M Bible I, for those of us who attended there, and there were other initials for various other aspects of the school when I was there. But uh, Moody uh, and some other institutions, and a guy by the name of Dr. Armstrong, have really made an emphasis of saying we want quality theological education in the local church. So often, for theological education, we feel like you have to move, go to a Bible school, uh, uproot, and pay a bunch of money. And Dr. Armstrong has said, man, because of technology, we can bring teachers, educators in from around the world and do it at the local church. So we kicked it off as an experiment with them. Uh, they're doing it overseas. In fact, Moody had 440 graduates, I believe it was in Nigeria this year, of pastors who have been through this first two-year training. And 440 pastors who had previously had no training, they're now starting another two years of additional education and training with those pastors. And so we're excited about what that means. But this first one is on prayer, and I learned kind of a new model for public or private prayer. There's not a right model, but Brett modeled it for us this morning. That is, you read the Word of God. It's about praying the Word of God. You read the Word of God, and then you reflect on what it says. What is, what is God saying, and what is God talking to me about? And we reflect on it, and then we respond in praying. And the last R of this kind of um, system or graphic, if you will, is rest. You just rest in what you've heard and learned of God. And so this morning, Brett led us in that, and we're going to kind of structure the service like that. We read our passage this morning, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. It's a pretty direct statement by John. We're going to spend some time trying to unpack it this morning or reflecting on it. And I'll give you some of my uh, impressions. And then I want you to reflect on what you are getting out of this text. And then at the end of the service, we're going to take some time and respond in corporate and private prayer. And then often we hope or we believe that we take one day of rest. And so if today is a day of rest for you, that you can continue that in resting in what God has said and done. Fair enough? Okay, for two of us, it's good. <laughs> I'm going to read the passage one more time. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In a first reading, it seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? I mean, it says what it says. I always like when we have, we have on uh, Tuesdays a group of guys who meet together. We call it the pulpit team, and we're wrestling through the text. 
And very often one will say, hey, hey, Neil, what does that mean? And he, his favorite phrase is this, it means what it says. <laughs> it means what it says. But there are also some pretty obvious questions, isn't, uh, aren't there? The first one might be, what in the world is the world? What does John mean by the world? Is John saying that we're to love nothing in this physical world? We, we can't appreciate the mountains and the, and the snow and the grandeur of what God has created? Are we not to love each other? That pretty much contradicts what the Bible says about loving our brothers and sisters in the previous section, right? In fact, John in his epistle, in, I mean in his gospel, said this in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The, the Bible uses the word, let me just summarize this real quickly, world, to describe a number of different things. Carl Sagan, if you remember his show, The Cosmos, Right? He made the word popular, but the Bible uses the word cosmos in a bunch of different ways, and I'm going to let you do a word study on your own. You can study the various times that that is used in the New Testament. But in this case, John is using it to describe a system that is opposed to all things godly. If it's not diametrically opposed, it at least is tweaking it so that the system becomes man-centered rather than God-centered. It's a way of thinking and living that goes against what pleases and honors God. In essence, it's a system that declares its independence from God. A man-centered universe as opposed to a God-centered universe. And inevitably, a man-centered universe ends up becoming a me-centered universe. Does it not? Somebody help me here. Yeah, you're saying, sure, it becomes a you-centered universe. It becomes about me. As soon as we take God off the central position, it becomes about me. And that is opposed to what God is saying. Now, the good news about this this morning is that in these verses, John actually describes what he means by the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So let me try and unpack that just a bit this morning. Being a Christian involves a thoroughgoing and ongoing dedication to the things of God. Now, I want to say that what we're talking about this morning doesn't get us saved or keep us saved. There's nothing you or I can do to get ourselves saved or get good enough for God to love us. Are we clear on that? Okay. We can't earn God's love or nor... I'm an English teacher, so I've got to figure out what the right thing is. Nor can we do anything to keep God loving us. We can't, we can't do anything to, dis, to cause God not to love us. We can't move ourselves out from under His love. There are, however, natural consequences or results of being saved. Loving God involves loving certain things and not loving other things. We love the things He loves if we love him, right? What do your kids grow up loving and valuing? What you do. 
right? And I'm learning that grandkids do. But my grandkids want to learn to snow ski. It's because Linda loves it so much. <laughs> One of the littles this week said, we got a video on the phone, you know. I can't I'm going, I couldn't hardly talk, but he was talking about, he had his helmet on backwards, a big scarf around his neck. I'm going to kill my grandpa, we're going to go fast. <laughs> Put him on the skis and he started to cry. <laughs> but we'll get over the details of this stuff, right? We love what the things, the people we love, love. Now, I want to say this. Most things are neutral, right, in the world. Is money good or bad? That's right, yes. It's our attitude towards it that creates the problem. And by things, I'm not meaning simply objects. It includes objects, but it includes activities and people and opportunities and relationships. All of those things tweaked just a little bit, as Jason reminded us this morning, can become idols in our lives and distractions from the one we love. So let's look a little bit at these three terms, the desires of the flesh. Carl Payne, whom many of you have met, defines these as physiological urges that war against what God says. Now, what is a physiological urge? Is something that our physical body desires. Any of you desire to eat? My stomach just growled when I said that. We desire to eat. Why? God made us to eat. What happens if you don't eat? You die eventually. You get thin and then you die, right? So food is a legitimate desire. Can we miss use that desire. No. Let's go on, okay? <laughs> we were designed with particular physiological drives. Do we get thirsty? And what happens when we get thirsty? We take a drink. In fact, if you're an outdoorsman or you ever do anything at altitude or exercise or you're involved in the heat, if you wait until you're thirsty, Jason, as a firefighter, you're in the midst of fighting a fire, you wait till you're really thirsty, what happens? You're too late. You cannot hydrate fast enough. You've got to hydrate ahead of time. And so God gives us these desires, physical drives that are from him. Now, this may surprise you, but we have sexual desires. Now, I don't want to offend you, but God invented sex. I was sharing in the first service, I was doing a premarital counseling with a couple, and they said, this is so weird. We have grown up in youth group having you tell us sex is bad. I said, I never said it was bad. And they said, well, that's what we heard. But they said, now you're telling us it's awesome. I said, it's the latter. <laughs> but it depends on how you use it. All of our urges 
are given by God, and they're only fulfilling when, they, when we fulfill them according to God's terms. The problem is not that we have physical desires. It's when we use them or count on them for self-gratification outside of God's will. It's when the urges rule our lives rather than obedience to God's design and will does. We have a culture that says, satisfy your desires any way you can because ultimately you'll be happy. And what's happening? It's chaos. When urges rule our lives rather than the Holy Spirit, we've chosen to cast off authority and guidance and design and ultimately fulfillment. It's interesting in our culture, actually I should probably say the world, says now that God's ideas are restrictive and enslaving. And yet the God who designed us, designed us for ultimate fulfillment. We should be free, the world says, to satisfy our various desires any way we want. And what God says is the exact opposite is true. If you fulfill them outside of his design, the gratification of the desire becomes the goal. And it will never be satisfied. Ever. How much does it take to satisfy an addiction? Just some more. Just of whatever we're addicted to. And we are an addicted society. And what I want to say, cravings satisfied outside of God's design become an ever-increasing slavery to need an ever-increasing stimulus in order to satisfy. An ever-increasing slavery to need an ever-increasing stimulus in order to satisfy. Addictions are always slavery. And in turn... Because we have an addiction or develop an addiction, we rationalize all kinds of behaviors that facilitate our ever-increasing debased desires. Right? You can't believe what I hear in counseling with people. They rationalize all kinds of stuff. And let me say, we rationalize all kinds of stuff because we think we deserve to be satisfied and happy. And so now, as a culture, we have adopted abortion, homosexuality, gender dysphoria, and all of those have become accepted. In fact, ultimately exalted because they allow us to pursue what satisfies our desires. Romans 1 describes the ever-tightening downward spiral. Now, let me tell you that. It's an ever-tightening downward spiral. I'm going to read verses 24 through 32 of Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up. You'll see that phrase repeatedly in here. To dishonorable passions. And then verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind in order to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval. They elevate those who practice them. Does that sound familiar? Notice the phrase, God gave them up. Specifically here, it's to sexual cravings, but in the last verses that I read, it's to total debasement. We get addicted, and the world fuels those addictions. Now, all of us have particular struggles, correct? The problem is when we rely on something other than God to fulfill our lives, then we're in trouble. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but all, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated or controlled by anything. He goes on to talk in the immediate context about food and sex. In 2 Peter 2.19, Peter talks about people who are slaves to those things that have mastered them. Carl Payne in his book on spiritual warfare says the world contributes to the problem by externally stimulating physiological responses. I was watching TV the other night and a commercial came on and it was late at night and it was a picture of a hamburger and fries and then they poured this Coke in a glass and you could hear it and you could see it. I didn't want to get too close to the TV because I thought the bubbles would get on my... But what did that do? It made my mouth begin to water. I thought, I need this. I'm getting in the car. It's 10 o'clock at night. I need all those carbs and sugar and all that caffeine. Why? Because I deserve it. <laughs> Let me say this. The world system is set against honoring God and it's set on enticing us to cater to our flesh without considering God's plan, God's timing, his design, or his desire for us. Remember the temptations of Jesus? They were all legit. The temptation was fulfill these outside of the will of God for you. There is absolutely no satisfying of cravings outside of God's design and desire for us. 
It feels like it momentarily, but it ends up not satisfying. And we have to go back and get more or bigger or better. There is no satisfying fleshly cravings, even legitimate ones, outside of God's design and desire for us. Never. In spite of what our culture says. And our culture now is saying, go this direction. I don't talk much about political stuff, but I'll tell you that this whole gender dysphoria thing is disastrous. And we're going to have a whole generation of young people who look back and are empty. And the suicide rate among people who are transitioning is astronomical. Because they think, if I just try and change my reality, it will satisfy me. And it's slavery. The second one that Paul describes is the desires of the eyes. Our eyes are often the key bridge from the world to our soul. Let me ask this question in general terms. Does entertainment today fuel the desire for godliness or baseness? To my shame, I can't tell you how often I will have something on TV and my wife will hear the language and say, really? I pretend I can't hear her. <laughs> We're buying into stuff that we think is not poisoning us. TV, movies, video games all feed the desire for something other than God. And very often it's sex and violence. Advertisements fuel the desire for what we don't have. We see, we want, we crave, we must have. Any of you ever been on eBay? First service, everybody pointed at me. I'm so glad to have some company here. What we see on eBay is what somebody else has or actually had. It's a good deal. We can't pass up a good deal, so we must own it. Which causes the need for storage units. <laughs> we see, we want, we crave, we must have. Carl Payne says that often it's the desire for beautiful things that we think will make us happy. I was watching Barrett Jackson the other day. I just want to hug some of those cars. By the way, this has little, if anything, to do with what we have or don't have. Do you know people who have quite a bit in this life, and they're okay with it? Do you know people who have quite a bit, and they're not so okay to be around? Do you know people who don't have much, and they're as obnoxious as the people they have because all they're focused on is what they don't have? We can by own, be owned by what we have. We can be just as easily owned by what we don't have. The constant search for what will satisfy us other than God makes us eternally discontent. And words like this describe our soul, if we're honest. Jealous. Now, none of us would use that. Covetous. Envy. They have it. I don't. I deserve it. I want it. Do you remember the old Sunday school song, Be Careful Little Eyes, What You See? Remember that? 
If you remember that, you're old. But <laughs> the point of this song, and I don't know how old I was when I learned it, is this. You focus your eyes on something, guess what? It's going to open your soul to it. I know we've talked about this before, but what if we placed either literally or figuratively on all our devices, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers. And when the Bible says brothers, it means brothers and sisters, right? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lover and lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Would that change what we allow across our phones, our iPads, our computers, and our televisions? Nobody's willing to say it out loud, but I see heads going. The desire of the eyes. Do we crave what we see around us or what we see of God? There's a difference between enjoying the world and craving it, isn't there? It's where we look for satisfaction. I love the Northwest. I love all the opportunities. I love being in the mountains. And God designed all that. But if that is where I seek my satisfaction, I'm in trouble. Perhaps a better way is to say, are we enjoying his world versus living for it? Third one he talks about is the pride of life. This is pride in what we do or who we are. It's in our identity. It's, it, it, it's who we are, what we have. Do we derive our status in where we live or what we drive? How about our trophies, our awards, or our recognition? How about our positions or social standing? This one boils down to self-sufficiency or God-sufficiency. And it usually comes out in comparison to others or, or what we want others to see us as, our status. We want to be seen as significant, don't we? Thank you. The question is, in whose eyes? It's what Jason was talking about this morning. This young teenage boy gets to camp, and most of his friends aren't there, and he realized, man, I need my friends to feel valuable. I'm living for my friends' approval. So he had made idols out of their friends. There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with success. It's how we provide for our families and for others. There's nothing wrong with maximizing what God has gifted us with. In fact, we're encouraged to do so, right, in the parable of talents. The problem comes when we leave God out of our plans. I'm going to give you a passage to look up because we're running out of time. In Luke 12, 13 to 21, Jesus tells a parable about a man who lays up treasures for himself and says, oh, I'll spend it this way, I'll spend it that way. God said to him, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. I'd encourage you to look at that. It's a challenge to our value system. And by the way, none of this is new. It's been happening for how long? 
since the beginning of time. Remember the temptation in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Turn there if you want to. I'm going to read it quickly. Now the serpent, serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Is there any doubt here what God says? I mean, they're all on the same page, right? They know what God has said. But the serpent said to the women, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. You will be made happy and satisfied. If you do your thing, God's holding out on you. And listen to this in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What do you see? Lust of the flesh, it's good for food. Lust of the eyes, it was a delight to the eyes. And it would be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. Is there anything wrong with being seen as wise? Not at all, unless it's our identity. This is in all of us. It's a constant struggle of being self-absorbed or being God-absorbed, and we fight with it every day. When will it end? When we're out of here, there's something in the nature of our humanness, our flesh, that causes us to crave these things and try and be satisfied in something other than Jesus. And guess what? It makes us demanding, dogmatic, and dissatisfied. This morning, I'm going to let John make our application for us. The first one is this. He says, the love of the Father is not in us. If we live with these other loves, the love of the Father is not in us. He's not saying you're not saved. He's not saying you don't love Jesus. Let me summarize it. Jesus says this, you can't serve two masters. Eventually, they'll be in conflict. You either love one or hate the other or vice versa. You have to choose whom you'll serve. That's what love is, serving. William Barclay says it this way, there are rivals for the human heart who owns our affections and what affections own us. Love really boils down to loyalties and priorities. Does it not? Yes. Choosing something or someone over others. It's a choice of what we will give ourselves to. We want to be served. Our desires to be served so quickly become expectations, and expectations so quickly become demands, don't they? Because we want satisfaction or demand it from something other than God. The second thing John says is the world is passing away. Here's the bottom line. The world never really satisfies. Never, ever, ever, ever satisfies. 
ever. How much do you need to be happy? Just a bit more, right? Just something else. Or a little bit of what I, something. The Bible says that sin satisfies for a season, but the season is short. And what satisfied last time is not enough this time, so it's an enslavement. And by the way, that can be anything. Our identity can be in anything. Ministry, family, anything that we substitute for God's satisfying of our soul will quickly become an, uh, an idol, and it will eat us alive. All that this world has to offer is passing away. It can't and doesn't last. That's why the Bible encourages us to have an eternal perspective. Colossians 3, 1-4, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Guess what? If you know the Lord, you'll never be satisfied with the paltry substitutes this world has to offer. No matter how positive they see. Therein lies the battle. Immediate gratification versus long-term satisfaction. Serving our flesh rather than serving our Father. Had a discussion with one of my grandkids this last week. She decided that she wanted a Cinnabon. It's a great desire. And she said, we need to go get a Cinnabon. And I said something about, well, I don't want to spend money on a Cinnabon. They're expensive. And she said, I have money. <laughs> I said, you have money? Yes, it's in a piggy bank. I'm thinking, we could bust that baby. <laughs> you know what she was saying? I will, post, I will not postpone gratification. I will do this now and spend my money for a temporary satisfaction. And as soon as we eat the Cinnabon, what will she be thinking? I want my piggy bank back. I heard a phrase this morning. Someone gave me a book this morning to read, and I'm going to read it. It's called A Hunger for the Holy. And she talked about this phrase. I don't know if it came from the book or not, but she said this. We need to learn to savor life, the things that life has to offer, not devour them. You ever been to an all-you-can-eat buffet? What happens at an all-you-can-eat buffet? I gotta get my money's worth. Don't ever go to one in Canada. We found checking out that you have to pay by the weight of the bowl. <laughs> you need it all, but you pay for it by the ounce. That was a shocking discovery. When the two teenage boys leading the crew came up with 72 and 68 dollars in their bowls. <laughs> I'm learning Linda's sister's husband is a chef. 
And we went one time to the Clark House for our anniversary and for dinner. And they said, we only book the tables once a night. So when you come here, we're going to serve you your various courses. But you won't get the next course until you ask for it. And we encourage you to walk around the mansion and explore it. In fact, it's a great opportunity if you're staying here just to relax. You can go talk to the chef. We will bring the second course when you're ready for it. And your dinner is an evening experience. Do you know what that's like for a guy like me? That's get it done and get on with life. Bring it all out, smash it on one plate, and I'll get it in as fast as I can. I think that's what John is saying we should do with life. We have to savor what God gives us and enjoy it in relationship with him, not devour it on our own terms and at high speed. Brett modeled this this morning. Here's what I want us to do. We've read the passage. We've reflected on it. And I'm giving you some of the things that I've reflected on. You're going to have different ones maybe, probably better ones. But what I want us to do now is respond to the Lord. Much like when you heard Brett pray, he admitted, Lord, there are things that compete for my affections. Some of these may be to say, thank you, God, thank you for asking us. I think this passage is a tremendous privilege. It's also a great exhortation. The privilege is that God invites us into satisfaction. He invites us to enjoy life that he has given us on his terms. And he's given us life to enjoy. Read Ecclesiastes. But there's so much competition for our soul. And the exhortation is be careful where you're going to satisfy your soul. Even in good things, friends, family, career stuff, it can quickly become an idol. Tell the Lord that. And then we get to rest in it. We get to enjoy what we've learned in him throughout the rest of the day. So what I'm going to do is pray. I'm going to encourage you to spend some time praying. And then when you're done, you can just walk out quietly. And by the way, people aren't, you aren't measured in how spiritual you are by how long you stay. We do have the video camera running, but that... <laughs> this is about us responding to the Lord. And what is a Sunday morning if we don't take time to respond. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege that you give us these things. You give us food. You give us sex and sexual desires. You give us a world made for us. Fresh air, clean water, Mountains, lakes, family, friends, kids, grandkids, spouses. And Lord, so quickly we turn them and we make them about us. Or we 
tweak them. Forgive us, Lord. Father's Day, may we understand what you're saying about having an eternal perspective. Because that's what matters. And only that is what will satisfy. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May we embrace it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.